Monday of August, and we are delighted to be back on air with Book Choice, bringing our book-loving listeners a hefty dose of bookish news to sustain you during the seemingly endless lockdown lifestyle. FMR continues to bring calm in the chaos, and we're still broadcasting from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town, which is slowly starting to show signs of activity once again. I'm Cindy Moritz, and our tenacious team of reviewers has yet again provided a treasure trove of reading recommendations for our listeners. We begin with a memoir reviewed by Vanessa Levenstein, titled Undeniable, Memoirs of a Covert War, written by Philippa Garson. It's her riveting account of working as a journalist during the early 1990s in South Africa. Melvin Minar found the world of art worth a detailed visit in William Fever's The Lives of Lucian Freud, Youth 1922-1968. And Leanne Voicy regales us with her thoughts on Felicity McLean's debut novel, The Fun Apple Girls Are Gone. Beverly Ruiz Muller remains loyal to one of her favorite writers, Martin Cruz Smith, and gives us her take on the Siberian Dilemma. And Philip Todras brings Rhinos center stage with Remembering Rhinos, part of the Remembering Wildlife series of four books by Margot Raggett. Seasoned ornithologist Rob Little recommends Rupert Watson's Peacocks and Pickathots, Reflections on Africa's Bird Life, for those who'd like to stay in touch with the wonders of our truly rich African bird diversity. And Beryl Eichenberger spoke to Hedy Lampert, author of The Trouble with My Aunt, uncovering family secrets discovered during a real-life journey with Fragile X Syndrome. Finishing our monthly offering, Leslie Beek encourages us to look where the books for the very young are found for something to delight, and suggests four of author and illustrator Chris Houghton's very best. Let's jump right in. Vanessa Levenstein, you called Philippa Garson's undeniable Memoirs of a Covert War a brutal, intimate and raw account of a time in South Africa's history that has been called a season of violence. Tell us more. Memoirs are tricky things. It's so easy for the person writing them to be swept away by their own romantic impression of themselves. Not so with undeniable Memoirs of a Covert War by Philippa Garson. This is a brutal, intimate and raw account of the author's time as a journalist during the early 1990s in South Africa, where she covered the civil war between Nkata and ANC-allied communities and the involvement of a third force, which was fueling the killing frenzy. From word go, it's clear that the author's memoir is motivated by a deep need to tell the story of those who remain faceless and nameless. Her dedication is to the memory of the thousands of people killed during the season of violence that preceded South Africa's first democratic election. The turbulent backdrop mirrors her turbulent relationship with her partner, a man of colour from the Western Cape. Philippa came from a middle-class academic family and their two worlds were worlds apart. Philippa was a journalist at the Weekly Mail with Anton Harbour at the helm. This keenly awaited Friday publication had a tradition of fine and fearless journalism. Determined to make her mark, she dived into the townships, witnessed mass killings, and narrowly escaped with her life. Around 14,000 people were killed in South Africa during the four and a half years following the release of Mandela, a bloody time, and one which was swept under the carpet. Physically and emotionally drained, Philippa escapes from the bullets to a bohemian oasis, the arty Rocky Street and Jamison's Bar. The soundtrack to the era was that of the iconic James Phillips. 
She also worked with Pulitzer Prize winner Kevin Carter of the famous Bang Bang Club. Indeed, if you've read the book of the same name, you'll recognize familiar characters. However, Undeniable is written from the female perspective and combines the personal with the political. It's not just gender that sets her aside, but her whiteness, and she's not afraid of deconstructing this in the context of the transformation. She is a white, privileged South African, grappling with guilt, motivated by genuine journalistic desire to reveal the truth, and seeking a space where she is comfortable being herself. She does find her voice. Philippa interviews Chris Harney, who calls her up after the article was published, and in his amiable way says, "If you ever need anything else, don't hesitate to call me. Only there would be no next time." With an extensive bibliography, notes, and index at the end, it's clear that this is a work of many years in preparation, coupled with being a heartfelt and haunting memoir. Undeniable, memoir of a covert war, is a legacy to those who lost their lives, and it's an insight into the journalist behind the byline. Reading for this time, actually, yes, there will always be a place for well-written stories that reflect the complexities and battles. Both internal and external, of the human struggle. Melvin Minar, you found the eccentric and odd in the world of art well worth a detailed visit in William Fever's *The Lives of Lucian Freud, Youth, 1922 to 1968*. The debate whether the life and career of an artist are of interest or whether only their art matters has ebbed and flowed over centuries. Is an artist to be judged by the way he or she lived and made art, or are the works themselves enough to determine importance? These days, the life of an artist is probably only interesting as a full-blown biography when he or she is really, really famous, and that nowadays unfortunately means art that sells or is valued for millions. In a much-changed contemporary art environment, many will even question the need or want of an artist's biography. Such a life. In the flash of the Instagram and virtual art environment we currently live in, may also seem an ephemeral afterthought. But William Ferrer's *The Lives of Lucian Freud, Youth, 1922 to 1968* is exacting proof that the eccentric and odd in the world of art is well worth a detailed visit. A hefty tome of 680 pages. It did hours-long duty as reading pleasure in lockdown time. The second part is due in September, and already expectation is running high. It's a jolly fine, densely delicious read, with just enough gossipiness and colourful characters to drive a reader's attention, even if you've not been face to face with his engaging portraits. For those who have, the debate I mentioned matters little. Fever is considered the leading expert on Freud, having recorded regular friendship conversations with him since the early 1970s. In his lifetime, Freud wasn't keen on a biography, rather a novel after death, he suggested to Fever. But in later years, people referred to the writer who said Freud knew much more about his life than he himself could recall. Which signals that this biography is very much the inside track, and with some 30% of the text direct quotes from the famous artists, it takes on a vibrant real-time immediacy. It also paints vivid imagery of the people and places of the decades covered. Lucian Freud, a grandson of the famed Sigmund, is considered one of the greatest painters of the past century. He also has the cliched image of the oddball artist at odds with social realities, self-centered, obsessively self-disciplined to his art, a gambler, money loser, winner, philanderer, and counterintuitive operator. Since he died in 2011 at 88, his art has become the sought-after simulacra of the artist as a godly exposure of the psyche in the physical. The ultimate record of personality and person in portraiture, and specifically in paint. His expressive pictures of people, in his later career executed over days and hours of meticulous application of paint gestures, redefined portraiture itself. 
Before the hyperrealism of today's multi-gigabyte imagery that expose more than the eye can actually see, his finest paintings have the uncanny presence of super-personas, personalities, people, and their most colourful social presences, from the lowest to the highest in the then-typical British rank of society, were and made the world of his life and art. From petty thieves to royalty, from skunks to moguls, were the characters that propelled his behaviour and inspired his picture-making. Fever covers in this first volume the years before and from his family's flight from Nazi Germany when he was about to turn 11 years old, until he was pushing 50 and had become a world-renowned artist. In the lives of Lucian Freud youth, Fever gives crisp commentary on the artworks that come up as markers in the biography, but avoids vague judgments or psychological speculation. This he leaves to us readers. Given the grandfather's statue, the psychological backstory to one of the great artists and his eccentricities becomes an indulgent, speculative parallel read, and most enjoyably entertaining.
And we were listening to Sing, 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 played by the Johnny Cooper Orchestra. Leanne Voisey, you take us to sweltering, sticky Australian small-town suburbia in Felicity McLean's debut novel, The Fun Apple Girls Are Gone. Sweltering, sticky, and reeking of Australian small-town suburbia, Felicity McLean's debut novel, The Von Apple Girls Are Gone, is part thriller, part coming-of-age story, and part keenly observed glimpse into life with its measures of beauty and pain. The protagonist, Tika, speaks to us as both adult and child, which allows the author to cover a broad emotional range. While the passage of time means that we, the readers, go from way back then to now, which is satisfying for the narrative. To me, the book's cover is a bit Judith Crancy and lightweight looking, and I don't know if this is to capture the young adult reader. But from the very first passage, McLean takes one by the hand and walks us through what a girl saw and felt during a hot, unforgiving Australian summer in 1992. It is a tough story to hear, and very soon we begin to read between the lines of what 11- and a 6-year-old Tika is telling us. The themes are adult, abuse, underage sex, neglect, incest and death. McLean unsentimentally leaves it to the reader to decide what more than likely could have occurred. Nothing is offered up on a platter, and if you like your books neatly tied up at the end, you will not enjoy this novel. As an Australian herself, the author's descriptions of time and place are evocative and heartfelt. She writes confidently and boldly, often using whimsy to plumb our emotions. We are asked to withhold judgment and be kind in the face of some deeply flawed characters. And yet, even though a tragic death occurs and lives are forever lost and changed, the book brims with laughs and hope. It is ultimately uplifting, and I would recommend it to readers who enjoyed books like Barbara Kingsolver's Poisonwood Bible and The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold. The Von Apfel Girls Are Gone by Felicity McLean is available in hard copy, to read on Kindle, and as an audiobook. Beverly Ruiz Muller enjoyed the latest in a series of nine from one of her favorite authors, Martin Cruz Smith, and is going to share her thoughts on the Siberian Dilemma. Before I talk about this book, The Siberian Dilemma by Martin Cruz Smith, I must confess to you that I am terrified of only two things in life bears and extreme cold. I know it's irrational, right? Especially as I've lived most of my life in Africa. So imagine my response in realizing that bears and extreme cold loom large in this latest novel in the Arkady Renko series, best known from the wonderful Gorky Park. The Russian investigator is a decent and incorruptible man, trapped in a system that does not exactly prize honesty. Renko is an ill-fated detective who has the misfortune of having a famous and very tough general as a father and a habit of thoroughly annoying his superior officers by not taking their advice. In other words, looking the other way. He's stubborn, unlucky in love, and sharp as a tack, with a cynical view of life well borne out by his own experience. Not much has changed since the Cold War. Putin still rules Russia with an iron fist and a cult of his own personality, not much different to the Tsars. Oligarchs like the former warlords who achieved riches and titles back in the old days have now moved in to help themselves to oil and other Russian resources and stuff the locals and the environment. If you're rich, you are untouchable and can employ very persuasive means to get rid of your critics, just as the president does. Renko's latest love, a feisty and good-looking journalist named Tatiana, has disappeared into Siberia, that vast and frightening land of exile and lawlessness, in order to track a story on one of the oligarchs who plans to oppose Putin. Not that he expects to win. Putin's supporters control the polls. And when they say what percentage of a win they want, be sure that's what the figures will show. Her oil baron has a friend he met in jail who is now his business opponent. They both own oil wells, and one is being sabotaged. How will this play out? 
Renko is sent off to Siberia to investigate a trumped-up murder charge against a Chechen accused of trying to shoot the detective's boss. He is expected to deliver short justice. Instead, he proves the man is innocent to the annoyance of absolutely everyone and also finds Tatiana and her powerful political friend in Irkutsk, reputably the toughest city to live in on Earth. There's a hunt for bears in Siberia, which ends particularly badly. Bears prowl oil fields, and the justification for shooting them is to cull them, another name, of course, for murder. On the other hand, being mauled by a bear, which is what happens to Renko, is my least favorite way to die. So you see my dilemma. But the Siberian dilemma is a different one. It's about survivalism. And here it is. If you fall through the ice into cold water... Do you stay there and live for five minutes, or do you scramble out and die frozen and drenched within one minute? The answer, apparently, there isn't really a good choice, is that you climb out, because if you try, you might live, whereas if you just stay in the water, you'll definitely die. The truth is, you're probably going to die either way. So here's my dilemma. In reading books set in such brutal situations, I spent half the time wondering why these people haven't yet moved to Hawaii. Anyone who messes with bears and ice pretty much deserves what they get. And yet, it makes great reading from the warm safety of my bed. I prefer the earlier, denser Arkady books, in particular Gorky Park. But this one passes the time dramatically, and there's always a laconic Renko line or two that takes my fancy. The Siberian Dilemma is pacey and easy to read, and Martin Cruz Smith remains, for me, a writer I never want to miss. So they say I myself don't talk about a new world in the morning New world in the morning, that's today And I can feel a new tomorrow coming on was New World in the Morning, Roger Whittaker's hit song performed by Eve Boswell.
Philip Todras had a look at Remembering Rhinos from the series of four books by Margot Raggett, Remembering Wildlife, created to celebrate the magnificence of endangered animals. Remembering Rhinos has been brought out with HPH Publishing together with Remembering Wildlife and Wildlife Photographers United. It's a very handsome book and it's part of a series but I'm going to focus on the rhinos, which is what I have in front of me, although there are four others, which is also remembering elephants, which was the first of the series, then remembering lions and remembering apes. So it's a series which is brought out with very good intentions. Not only do you get a handsome book, but you also support a very good cause. I'm going to read from the blurb, which is by Margot Raggett, who's the founding member. And she writes that how, as a conservationist herself, she became increasingly concerned about the many species of wildlife who are fighting against time. And through the global population, explosion is a huge factor. All too often it is money and ignorance that are the main causes of the demise. Sadly, this is certainly the case when it comes to rhinos, whose horns, made of useless keratin, are worth their weight in gold on the black market. They are being poached towards extinction, often with brutal consequences. By the way, keratin is what our nails are made of. So where this fallacy mythology goes about rhino horns, I don't know. But the devastating effects is very clearly brought out in this book as it goes through each species and shows you where they were to be found and where they are currently found today. And the sparseness is just, it's mind-blowing. One really is very fearful of what the situation is. In little over a century... We've lost 95% of the world's rhinos. Once there were 500,000 of them roaming the wilds of Africa and Asia, but now fewer than 29,000 survive. About 20,000 southern white rhinos, just over 5,000 black rhinos, 3,500 Indian rhinos, 100 Samaritan rhinos, 61 to 63 Javan rhinos, and wait for this, just three northern white rhinos. So indeed, as they say, the slaughter has been so merciless to wonder any have made it into the 21st century at all. But now let's start with what it's all about, which is a very handsome collection of photographs taken by world-famous wildlife photographers who've provided their services free to be able to have this book sold so that the profits go to conservation. And I think that's also very fitting because there's this Native American proverb which says, when the last tree has been cut down, the last fish caught, the last river poisoned, only then will we realize that one cannot eat money. So here we not only get a good book, but we can use our money supporting a good cause as well. I think it's also propitious that the book has come out at a time like this when we're going through a pandemic and it's making us rethink things. I think we've really substantially reached a tipping point. We really need to wonder where we're we going and how we're going to make things work more appropriately for our survival. Because the one thing about where we are today is when we come out of the other end, it's going to be into a very different world. And we hope it's going to be one which is certainly more conscious of conservation and efficiencies and energy ecosystems and all of that. So remembering rhinos has come out, I think, at a very good time. And the way it looks at things is beautifully done. The Mark Corridine, who's a zoologist and environmentalist, does the forward. The motivation for the book is given by Margaret Raggett, who is the founding member of Remembering Rhinos Finder, but also a founder of the whole series, Remembering Wildlife. So as I said, the images themselves, the photographs, are absolutely beautiful. What I liked immensely was what I would call traditional wildlife photography, well set within landscapes which one can relate to, particularly coming from Africa, ones which seem very, very foreign and exotic. But there's a wonderful sense also of looking closely at textures, at forms, the way color is used, and to a certain degree, I think somewhat some manipulation as well, which is entirely appropriate. I'd love to see some of the other books in the series, these three other books, but this is really a handsome book, which I think one would very much enjoy and keep looking at to see the way different eyes, because there's a whole combination of wildlife photographers, how different eyes look at the subject. So, to sum up, it's a very good book, 
In fact, the only word to use is a handsome book, a 144-page book, coffee-sized table book, which you will enjoy for many years fingering through and finding out lots of information which one mightn't be conscious of as it goes through the different species, where they were found and where they are found today. So that's Remembering Rhinos. It's the Wildlife Photographers United, the forward by Mark Gawardin, and I'm sure it's available locally and you'd want to get it and support a very good cause. Ornithologist Rob Little of the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology at UCT recommends Rupert Watson's Peacocks and Pithocots, Reflections on Africa's Bird Life for Bird Watchers Wanting to Keep in Touch with the Wonders of Our Truly Rich African Bird Diversity. I'd like to start the interview with regards to this book by giving a little background on my thoughts regarding tourism and, and bird watching. But first of all, amongst the drama and social impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, one thing that's really struck home to me is just how significant the global tourism market is. Within this, it also struck me how important tourism, including avi tourism, which is traveling bird watchers, is for many African countries. Ecotourism, including avi tourism, has the potential to alleviate poverty and bring much-needed money into the economy and creating jobs. Furthermore, bird guides themselves have been trained who have gained an appreciation of the value of birds from an economic and ecological perspective. And this is benefits for the communities in which they live, as well as for the birds themselves and their habitat. I've often recently wondered if there are more gaps for bird books. Well, along comes this fabulous little book, Peacocks and Picathartes, by Rupert Watson. While being a rather straight bird watcher myself, usually consulting only standard field guides and fact-rich handbooks, <laughs> I might not have normally fixated on this type of book. But when asked to review it, I soon became fascinated and indeed find it a breath of fresh air. I found that reading through the species accounts, I was picking up interesting and often overlooked characteristics and nuances about our superb African avifauna. It pleased me to pick up the book, which is quite refreshing in the change that it has no color plates, no distribution maps, and no rigid information layout, but rather allows the reader an easy reading of deeply researched information about the various bird groups across the continent. The context is also a pleasing mix of scientific facts and a plethora of anecdotal yet extremely informative prose, which I can see clearly is a product of Rupert Watson's own observations, of which there are many, and his knowledge, and a thorough review of the birding literature. The information in the book is intriguing and goes down into the original discovery of the Udzungwa forest partridge and follows on with instances where it describes the daily social routine of helmeted guinea fowl. And then to my surprise, even my own story of how Egyptian geese are making a nuisance of themselves on golf courses in Cape Town. The thorough information research clearly reflected in the scope of the biography and the further reading at the end of the book, which is a pleasant mix of scientific literature, birding books, and popular articles. Most of the book is made up of 26 accounts of birds or groups of birds and some species which occur only in Africa, followed by eight groups which occur mainly in Africa but also in other parts of the world, and then a section of Special species, which includes six, which was obviously the favorite of the author. Although the sequence covers the normal sort of standard field guides and the selection of the groups, it doesn't really explain why those groups were selected. But Rupert goes on to explain that he clearly gives no apology for the deviation from some strict scientific terminology and shamelessly indulges himself by covering the six special species. However, I think this all adds to the readability of the book. The penultimate, of course, second last chapter of the book, celebrates the conservation of birds and conservation in general and reveals some of the most interesting approaches, such as bird life's important bird and biodiversity areas, the value of bird atlases, and then the contribution that uh, practical data from ringing and recovering of birds and ultimately radio telemetry of mate conservation. And I think that this brings the twitcher and the lister and the ticker 
also close to the difference between the normal day-to-day birder and the true science of ornithology, which he goes in to explain and makes it a lot more readable to the owner of the book. He ends that chapter with an experience with local community members in the Masai Mara in Kenya, and that's also a very nice personal touch. All of this reaffirms the value of birding tourism and the realization that local communities do benefit from the birds and the special habitats around them. The final chapter is is dedicated to inspiration and information, which is really a history of birding and ornithology in Africa and covers some largely forgotten inspirational birding pioneers, many of whom can be linked to the common names of birds that we have. So overall, I strongly recommend anybody buying this book. Firstly, it's one of those that you can read at home. It's not necessarily needed to be taken to the field. And it just confirms the wonders of our African bird diversity. And I think Rupert has, within this book, achieved his goal of to inform and entertain and also to expand the reader's interest in Africa's bird life. And as a staff member at the Fitzpatrick Institute of African Ornithology at the University of Cape Town, I can also assure other birders that there's much of interest in this book for all. That was All Things Bright and Beautiful, the well-known hymn with new music by John Rutter, sung by the Herschel Chorale, conducted by Margaret Barlow. Beryl Eichenberger spent some time with author Hedy Lampert discussing her new book, The Trouble with My Aunt, in which she uncovers family secrets around a little-known syndrome called Fragile X. Hedy Lampert is a South African award-winning journalist, musician, artist, and ceramicist, amongst other things. The Trouble with My Aunt is her first novel and is set in the last 30 years of the 20th century in a very typical Johannesburg Jewish family. Leah is the protagonist, and her unplanned pregnancy unleashes a complex journey of uncovering secrets, diagnoses, and negotiating family dynamics But let's talk to Hedy to hear more about this frank, honest and empathetic story that will have you laughing out loud and wiping away a tear 
on many occasions. Hi, Hedy. Welcome. Hello, Beryl. Thank you for having me. I loved this book, as you as you very well know. I resonated with it wonderfully. But one of the things that I found so interesting was one of your strap lines, which says, nobody really knew what the trouble was with Auntie Vi. All I knew was that it was Gran's fault, says Leah. Yes. Where did that come from? Why did Leah think that the problem with Auntie Vi was actually Gran's fault? That was what Leah was brought up to believe. It was it was kind of generally a family thing, and there was a sort of a secret that involved Gran trying to get rid of the baby because she fell pregnant too soon after she'd had her first child. So she blamed herself, and and it was her cross to bear. But um, in reality, there there was a deeper genetic thing happening. So, Hedy, this is a work of fiction, but it is based on real life. So what was it that inspired you to write the book and pushed you into it? Because for 15 years, you had actually been researching the syndrome that was finally diagnosed with your aunt. It was actually a much older friend who said, what are you actually waiting for? And it was just on a day that I, I thought, I really better do this now. I'd, I'd tried it several different times. But I, I just knew this was a story that had to come out on paper or be surgically removed. And I'd always said I would write it in my 50s. But it, it's more about the irony that while the grand character blames herself because she feels that she was responsible for messing with her pregnancy. Um, When it was found out that it was, in fact, a genetic problem, nobody could actually tell her because that would have been harder for her to accept. And there was this Mm -hmm. terrible kind of dramatic tension that revolved around that particular thing. And I knew that there was a novel in that 15 years ago, and that's when I started going to creative writing courses, etc., because I was a magazine journalist and only ever wrote truth. So to write fiction was a very long journey for me, and um, I finally managed to do it with the trouble with my aunt. Well, you've blended fiction and truth brilliantly, and I think what we need to get to is fragile X syndrome was what was diagnosed, but how did Leah get to that diagnosis. Let's have a synopsis of the story leading up to her having to, uh, finding out what in fact troubled her aunt. Leah in the book has a cousin who also has a child who is profoundly affected by Fragile X, um, a male child. And um, this cousin has been doing research for years and years and years. And she finally finds out what it is because Fragile X, although it's as common as Down syndrome, was only identified actually in, in the late 80s, early 90s in terms of an actual diagnostic tool. And um, the cousin says to her, look, I suspect there's something that is wrong with your aunt that is the same as my child. And this thing does run in families because it's inherited. And so Leah then is forced to go for a test and her grandmother and the aunt, and that is how they discover it through the cousin's research. You go into very, very good detail um, because your book is very much dialogue-driven, so the reader is immediately able to understand what Fragile X is. And as you say, it's almost as common as Down syndrome, but little known. What memories and real-life characters did you draw on to create the story? Well, my aunt, my aunt who is still alive, in fact, I spoke to her yesterday, uh, she lives in a home, um, she's close to 87, so she has got fragile X. The character of I is very much true to my aunt, and the character of Gran is very much true to my Gran and the mom. So I drew on all those things, and I drew on memories of, of my young cousin, and then there was lots of research to back it up, and, and really the research was just, well, tick, 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 yes, that's what she's like. And yes, that's what he's like. So I almost didn't need to, 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 to go into that to know. It was more to actually have the scientific basis of things. And, and, and Fragile X is one of the leading inherited causes of autism and autism spectrum. And um, I'm very fascinated at the moment by um, there's a new show called Love on the Spectrum. And 
all my aunt ever wanted her whole life was, in fact, romance. And we've gone into that romance in the book very much. There's Leah's romance and there's the romance that the aunt wanted. And that is very much a running theme, which, which is endlessly fascinating for me. Hedy, sadly we have to wind up, but The Trouble With My Aunt is a delightful read whilst it gives you all the sort of medical details but in layperson's language. You'll learn about Fragile X, but the effect on the family. Hedy, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, we look forward to more such interviews in the future. Thank you, Beryl. Leslie Beek finishes off the program on a light note with four recommendations from author and illustrator Chris Houghton, Books that delight all ages. What we need right now, as opposed to what we're actually going to get, are some books that delight all ages and bring a smile to the face of everybody who experiences them, right? Try looking down the end where the books for the very young are found. Whether it's the end of the online ordering place, the end of the bookshop display, and the end of the library. And another place you might look is YouTube. If your read-aloud skills need developing, it's a good idea to Google a few favorites and hear somebody else reading them, sometimes even the writer or writer-illustrator. It's also fun and can qualify as research. For obvious reasons, books for the younger age group feature more here too, and there are some delightful versions, some ghastly ones as well, but we will draw a veil over them. Chris Houghton is one of that special breed of creative people who can write and illustrate his own books. There are surprisingly few of them around, Nikki Daly and Joan Rankin being two of South Africa's best known, Morris Svendak being the world's possibly best loved. Strangely, it appears that, do you illustrate your own books, is a top question asked of writers. I can't imagine why. It's the great gift of the illustrators among us that they usually manage to find so successfully what we writers had in what passes for our minds when we wrote the story. Oh No, George was my first Chris Houghton book, and I was so taken with it that I read it to a lunch party of nearly 80-year-old guests at a lunch party. They had only one question. Please, can you read it again? George is a long-eared hound who really does intend to be good when his person, Harris, goes out. But it's hard being a dog. Will you be good, George? asks Harris. Butter wouldn't melt in George's mouth. Yes, says George. I'll be very good. And he thinks. I hope I'll be very good. George sees something in the kitchen. Mm, I said it'd be good, George thinks. But I love cake. What will George do? And at that point, you have to turn the page to find out. And the caption on the next page is, Oh, no, George. Well, George does what George has to do, and then there is the matter of the cat. Cat. I said I'd be good, George thinks, but I love to play with cat. What will George do? Turn the page and... Oh, no, George. Similar dilemmas present themselves with a delicious, freshly dug flower bed, so that by the time Harris comes home, the place is wrecked. I said I'd be good, George thinks. I hoped I'd be good. But I wasn't. What will George do? What George does is bring his favorite toy and otherwise look cute and irresistible until Harris relents and takes him out for a walk, where George manages to resist a picnic blanket loaded with cake and surrounded by nervous ladies, another freshly dug flower bed, and even cat in a tree. We are left with George with the biggest plantation of them all, an overflowing rubbish bin. What will George do? Turn the page... George? And a question mark. Other books by Chris Houghton are just as simple and just as effective. Good Night, Everyone involves a little bear who doesn't want to sleep. Sound familiar? But who does eventually doze off after saying goodnight to the most endearingly created animals, small and large. My favorites are the little indigo mice asleep on their green, green page. Warning, these books may cause the reader to doze off before the child if read at bedtime. There's also a bit lost and Shh, We Have a Plan by the same author, illustrator, writer, all published by Walker Books in or around 2011. And here's my final reading tip. Anything by Walker Books is going to be good. And another tip, go online and look for the wonky donkey. Look for the version recorded by the Scottish granny for her grandson. When you finish laughing, allow yourself to be distracted 
as I was by an amazing amount of other stuff. Real life can wait. When you're smiling When you're smiling The whole world smiles with you When you're laughing Oh, when you're laughing sun comes shining through But when you're crying You bring on the rain So stop your sighing Be happy smiling Cause when you're smiling When You're Smiling, sung by Cape Town crooner Harry Curtis. And if you've enjoyed the show, do consider becoming a member of FMR for just 320 rand a year, less than a rand a day. FMR receives no funding or government grants, certainly no bailouts, 
And FMR membership fees and donations will greatly help FMR stay on the air and remain sustainable. Members receive our Opus e-magazine, which includes a newsletter and program guide, and your name also goes into a monthly lucky draw for fun prizes. And that's it for the month of August. Let's hope that as the days become warmer and brighter, we shall see the light at the end of what has been a rather long tunnel. No doubt reading a good book helps, and we've given you lots to consider picking up next. Thanks to Mawanda Lobi for putting this program together and Rick Everett for his upbeat choice of music. From me, Cindy Moritz, stay well, stay safe, and remember, reading is good and allowed on any level of lockdown. Go to it. Let's play out with this inspiring song, You Raise Me Up, with music and lyrics by Josh Groban, sung by the angel voices of the Tigerberg Children's Choir. And I look forward to being in your company again next month.